Hey guys, real quick, before we get started, I have a small request. If you've been blessed by our content and you like this show, would you take just a brief moment and leave us a five-star review? This is quite possibly the most effective thing that you can do to ensure that this content gets out to as many people as possible. Thanks. Jesus said, man cannot live on bread alone, but from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You're listening to Daily Truth. So what is the work of Christ? His birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, reigning, ruling, and intercession for you. And understanding the person and work of Jesus Christ and believing, giving your assent, your agreement, and your personal and implicit trust to this gospel, this good news, means that you are in Christ. But what we see in our text is this. When is there no longer a sacrifice for sin? The answer is when those who go on sinning deliberately after receiving this knowledge of the truth. Those who who have an intellectual understanding, a knowledge, but that knowledge never culminates in implicit personal trust. Mere knowledge apart from personal trust in Jesus places you into the very same category as demons. You know that God is one? Good. Even the demons know this and shudder. Demons have better Trinitarian doctrine than most professing Christians. And yet, there is no salvation for them. No opportunity of redemption for them. They are without hope. And they rage in anger, for they know that their time is short. When is there no longer a sacrifice for sins? When someone has a mere knowledge of the truth. The truth of what? The gospel. The person and work of Jesus. That he is the God-man. He lived, died, rose again, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And that he did all this as substitutionary work. Atonement for sinners. When you know that, the person and work of Jesus, the good news of the gospel, and yet go on deliberately sinning, according to our text, that's when no sacrifice for sin remains. Now that is a terrifying statement. And so I want to spend time breaking it down so that it would remain just terrifying enough in the way that God intends it to be terrifying. I believe it is the loving intention. That's why I started with the character of God and the 30,000 foot view that God intends this to be a terrifying threat even for his children so that it might propel them towards obedience. So I don't want to strip all the terror out of this threat, but I want to strip the unnecessary condemning terror. I want it to have a convictional terror. I believe that that is intended by the author and more importantly intended by the Holy Spirit, God who inspired the author. I want it to have a convicting terror, this threat, that if we go on deliberately sinning after having a knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin remains. I want that to have a convicting terror, but not a condemning terror. Not a condemning terror. I think that this text has been underpreached and overpreached. 
underpreached by those who believe that God is merely the author of sugar and spice and everything nice, and overpreached by those who would essentially say this, because this is the big question probably in some of your minds. What about habitual sin? If I have been told the gospel, and I understand everything that you've articulated thus far, the person and work of Jesus. Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully man. He was born of a Virgin Mary. He lived a sinless life. He died a substitutionary death. He bodily rose on the third, third day, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. I have heard. I have knowledge. I give my assent. I agree that it's true. And I also have personal and implicit trust. For the record, within the Reformed tradition, those being the three primary characteristics of faith, knowledge, assent, and trust. I've done all that as far as I can tell. I know, I assent, and I trust, and I still habitually look at pornography. That's the question, right? Am I then, therefore, that guy that the text seems to be talking about in verse 26 that goes on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth for whom there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Am I an unbeliever? Is this proof that I am unregenerate? And I would say that the answer is, and this will be um, profoundly unhelpful, yes and no. And I'll do my best to distinguish between the two. Yes and no. Allow me to do my best to clarify. First, let's look at John Gill. John Gill, he was the Baptist minister in the very same church that Charles Spurgeon later pastored about a hundred years after John Gill. He says this in regards to verse 26 of our text. This person who deliberately continues to sin, go on, goes on sinning after having a knowledge of the truth, the truth being, in this context, the gospel. This is not to be understood of a single act of sin. This is not to be understood as a single act of sin, but rather of a course of sinning, nor of sins through temptation or even of grosser acts of sin, like murder but of voluntary sin and not of all voluntary sin or in which the will is engaged and concerned, but of such which are done on set purpose, resolutely and obstinately and not of immoral practices, but of corrupt principles. I'll come back to that. And acting according to them, it intends a total apostasy from the truth against light and evidence joined with, again, obstinacy. Stubbornness, obstinate, refusal to the truth. What is John Gill saying? I want to hone in on this portion of his quote where he bifurcates immoral practices, habitual, ongoing, repetitive, immoral practices from corrupt principles. Immoral practices, corrupt principles. There is a difference. And the difference must be carefully discerned, but a difference nonetheless. 
between habitual sinful practices and a constant state of belief, a posture of the heart, a mentality, a mindset, an attitude that embraces corrupt principles, not just immoral practices, but corrupt principles, a denial of doctrine, a denial of content, of the truth about Christ Jesus. There's a difference. There's a difference between the person who says, I believe Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, and I believe that He died for me, not just as an example of sacrificial love, but as my substitute, the final Lamb of God. And I believe that I am a sinner whose only hope is to be saved by grace. And yet, although I do not love this sin, in fact, I have a growing hatred and aversion towards this sin, I continually fall in a habitual pattern in this particular arena. Oh, what a sinful man I am. Who will save me from this body of death? Sin still resides within the members of my flesh. I find this law at work within my being. That when I want to do good, evil is right there present with me. So that the good that I want to do, this I cannot carry out. Oh, what a wretched man I am. There's a difference between that individual and the person that because of their sin eventually, out of love for their sin, out of seeking to preserve not their faith, but their sin, guarding their sin, minimizing their sin, defending their sin, hiding their sin, justifying their sin, eventually embraces a false gospel. Meaning that the apostasy becomes total. Not just apostasy of deed, but apostasy in doctrine. Word and deed. And the reason why I believe that this is the correct exegesis of the text is because we must interpret Scripture with Scripture. The only infallible tool for interpreting Scripture is Scripture itself. And the best and most careful way for us to read any given text is to read it within its larger context. Meaning that we need to read verse 26 today in light of all of Hebrews chapter 10 and furthermore in light of the entirety of the book of Hebrews. And I'll show you what that means. Let's continue in your notes. I've written this. According to John Gill, this apostasy could manifest itself in any number of outward manifestations of sin. However, there does in fact appear to be one underlying sin not a singular committing of one sin, but a constant state of a particular sin. There does, in fact, appear to be one underlying sin that is particularly in view. That is the sin of unbelief. Now, although the daily sacrifice in Israel ought to have ceased at the death of Christ, it did not, in fact, cease until the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. Therefore, when we consider the larger context of the book of Hebrews, what outward manifestations of sin would most likely be committed by those with unbelief within the apostles' immediate audience? 
the people that he's writing to. What is the most likely interpretation of what the apostle is addressing? The outward sin of deliberately going back to Jerusalem and once again participating in the animal sacrificial system of Judaism. That's what he's talking about. When he says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Let me tell you very plainly, very frankly, what he's not talking about. What he's not talking about is if someone is justified or believes that they're justified and has believed the gospel and it's a 14-year-old young man, but he continues for multiple years post-conversion to struggle with masturbation, he is a false convert and going to hell. I don't believe that that's what he's talking about. That's not the context. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about what we've been talking about every single week, this entire year, in every single text of the entire book of Hebrews. I I don't think that he's had this one constant theme and then decided for one sentence to talk about masturbation. I think that he's talking about the same thing he's been talking about the entire time, which is what? He's talking about apostasy for believing Jews in relation to them abandoning the new covenant church. Abandoning faith in Christ. Abandoning the doctrine of the sufficiency of Christ. That he is the final sacrifice. The sufficient sacrifice. And abandoning this belief, this doctrine, this faith. Abandoning Christianity. And going back to Judaism and making constant repetitive sacrifices for sins. Burnt offerings, dove offerings, grain offerings. Going back to the the priestly sacrificial system under Moses. And what the apostle is saying is that those who go on deliberately sinning. After having a knowledge of the truth. Meaning those Jews. Remember, who's the book to? This isn't Galatians. This is not 1 Corinthians. This is not Ephesians. This is not the letter to the Romans. This is the book of Hebrews. This is a letter intentionally and distinctly written to Jews. Believing Jews. Or as far as the apostle knows, at least professing Jews. What is he warning them about? He's warning them about going back to the synagogue. Going back to the Sanhedrin. Going back to the priestly animal sacrificial system. Which would be equivalent to what? Denying the faith. Complete and utter apostasy. A complete betrayal. If they, it's one thing if they don't know. That, that too is sin. You have to know. How will they believe, right? We're not saved apart from faith. How will they have faith believe unless they hear? How will they hear? So someone's got to go and preach to the guys who don't know. If there's anyone in Israel who doesn't know, they need to hear and they need to believe. But to those who already have heard and who have joined the New Testament church and have claimed and professed faith in Jesus that he is enough, that his sacrifice is enough, that he's sufficient, that it is finished. And if they then... Go on deliberately sinning. Go back 
to Jerusalem. Go back to the temple and, and put their faith back in Moses. And they may even say, no, I believe in Jesus. I, I just believe in both. I'm hedging my bets. Well, see, the thing about Jesus, the thing about the Christian faith, the thing about the gospel is this. You don't have to do anything to earn it. You just have to believe. However, you have to believe in only Christ. Christ will not share in your pantheon of idols. Christ will not be among your many beliefs. Christ will not be a bet that is hedged. You don't have to work for Christ. You just have to believe in Christ. But you must believe only in Christ. Only in Christ. There is no hedging of that bet. There is no alternative. There is no little bit of Christ and a little bit of Judaism. Little bit of Christ, but I'll take some of Moses. Trusting in Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and a burnt offering here and there. Those who go on deliberately sinning after hearing the gospel, the truth, and professing their faith in that truth, Jesus, who is the truth and body, the way, the life, and the truth, and then to turn back to Judaism, to leave the New Testament church back to Jerusalem, back to the temple, back to the sacrifices that must be made daily for sin over and over and over because it's never enough. That person has denied the faith. That person was never saved. That person has nothing but the fearful expectation of a fiery judgment to come. Big news, really big news. Our next Right Response Conference is in the works. We've got a number of things already lined up and organized. This is what we've got so far. The whole conference, three days long on post-millennialism and theonomy. And the speakers, Dr. James White, Dr. Joseph Boot, Gary DeMar, and of course, yours truly, Pastor Joel Webbin. We've got a great lineup. We've got great topics. If you want to find out dates and location and registration and anything else, go and visit our website, rightresponseconference.com, rightresponseconference.com.